Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Context of White Supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Thursday, October 17, 2019. So I have been told this is our eighth and final study session on Toni Morrison's Tar Baby, her 1981 novel. Wow, been that long, almost 40 years. All done today and we don't even have a long session today. We have one audio segment and we are out of here. We can go and do other things with our Thursday evening. Uh, I don't know what's on T. I don't even know what comes on. We don't. We scandal is gone, right? It's no more skin. Shonda Rhimes has something. Grey's Anatomy is still on. I think they got football. Got to be something. You could do some yoga. Lots to do with our time. Anywho, uh, before we wrap things up. Uh, and I mean, it is, you know, going to be a full first audio segment at least. So we will at least focus thinking caps on, pay attention for the first portion, first and only. Uh, but I wanted to say we don't have audio segment. I'm going to read a little of Dr. Curry's The Man Not, The Dilemmas of Race, Class, or excuse me, Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. Uh, we read this in, uh, in my top 10 uh, books about racism, white supremacy, uh, a lot of constructive information in my view. Uh, we read it on the book club uh, last about this time last year. I narrated. Woof! Remember that. Uh, let's see. I wanted to read. This is page sixty-six. Actually, I'm going back up to the top a little bit. 
bottom of 64, bottom of 64. It reads, because the African male was thought to be irrational and barbarous, he was not a patriarch and therefore unfit to rule or govern himself. The black male was thought of as that thing that is to be ruled. He could not be improved through education or religion because his sexual instincts overwhelmed the higher faculties to which ethics or reason would appeal. Whereas the white male was rational and ordered, the African male was sensual and violent and in need of a patriarchal ruler to make him obey the laws of civilization. In the 19th century, the black male was thought to be a threat not only to white women, but to all women, black as well as white. Colonialism was often justified as an effort to save the savage women from their brute males. As Louise Newman writes, for over a century, Westerners had presumed that primitive women were overworked, sexually abused, or otherwise badly treated by men of their cultures. Like Newman, Gail Betterman argues that savage, that is, non-white races, had not yet evolved pronounced sexual differences and, to some extent, this was precisely what made them savage. Savage men had never evolved the chivalrous instinct to protect their women and children, but instead forced their women into exhausting drudgery, cultivating the fields, tending the fires, carrying heavy burdens. Overworked savage women had never evolved the refined delicacy of civilized women. Judging from this model of the home founded on patriarchy's projection of the empire of the mother, most social Darwinists located primitive societies at an earlier stage of development than civilized societies and often measured a society's relative position in the hierarchy of primitive to civilized nations by women's status or condition. The black African male was identified as an abuser of the primitive woman and colonialism was rationalized as an attempt to save her from her savage male counterpart. That's where I will stop. Uh, What stood out to me, I was going back and kind of flipping through uh, Dr. Curry's The Man Knot. Uh, And this is specifically from the section, those who can be colonized, ethnology as the foundation of black sensuality and the black male rapist. And the reason that I read that particular portion, uh, well, last week in Tar Baby, we concluded with it would be difficult to forget son because he fucked like a star. And I said, wow. It, you know, I said that on the air, just wow, I had to sit with that. Like, I don't know how I feel about that to again have a black male character reduced to his penis. Like, that's been the duration of this uh, book where that's exactly where we started with Son. He's a rapist. Everybody thinks he's a rapist uh, and wants to kill him or wants him killed. Everybody except Valerian thinks he's a rapist. 
Uh, and now here we are full circle again. And I just said, wow, I don't know how to think of that. Uh, the black male again in this book and for centuries, the system of white supremacy just reduced to his genitalia. And I went to Dr. Curry because throughout this book and throughout the system of white supremacy, uh, I'm a big Toni Morrison fan. We've read uh, more than one of her books, which is unprecedented uh, on the Cal's Book Club. Um, but even in the bluest eye, uh, we got black male rapist. Uh, Kali rapes uh, Pacola, his own daughter. Uh, we have, uh, I mean, and you can just look at some of the history of American literature. I'm sure the trend is, is global, but in American literature, the invisible man, which we also read my favorite book, we got true blood. He rapes his own daughter, same trend, uh, native son. We're bigger. Uh, he doesn't rape the white woman per se, but he kills her accidentally. Same thing, a violation against this white woman. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, uh, the main character is on trial, Tom Robbins, for allegedly raping this white woman. And, of course, he gets convicted and eventually killed. Uh, Birth of a Nation, based on the book The Klansman, uh, Gus the Renegade rapes a white woman and is killed by a Klansman. Uh, the color, I mean, you could just go on and on and on. The color purple, soul on ice. Even King Kong is supposed to be an allegory for the ape being the black male defiling a white woman. I mean, it's rife. Uh, I get kind of tired of reading books where there aren't a lot of black characters at all and or there are a limited number of black male characters. And of course, they are rapists, <laughs> some sort of sexual threat to someone, Bill Cosby. Uh, and they've got to be subdued. Uh, and that's even the case here. And particularly with the passage uh, that I read from Dr. Curry, I just thought of last week, uh, they're having all of these arguments, uh, they being Son and Jadine, they're having all of these arguments about Valerian, who is kind of the white colonizer, racist, to come in and civilize the primitive black people at least he can civilize the black female jadine but the black male is ugh, irredeemable and they had this big fight remember last week they had the big fight about education she wants him to go to school and he says nah i don't want to do it there's nothing for me there and, ah, education can't even save him ah, he's nothing but his penis uh just really stood out to me uh, and and some of the overlap uh jadine is leaving uh son she got her black seal skin coat from reek R-Y-K, white man, and she's going back to, to Paris uh, to, you know, tragic arrangement. Interracial, quote-unquote, relationships are sad. Uh, but she's going back there, and son, you know, who knows? He couldn't even get he couldn't even get a job uh, in New York. So who knows? Maybe he'll go back to Elo. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how the book concludes. That was what was on my mind from the conclusion of last week. Black male again reduced to his genitals. The man not. We'll see how it all wraps up this week. Context of white supremacy. Tony Morrison's Tar Baby audio segment number one and the conclusion. The man sat on the stone wall that separated Rue Madeleine from the sea. His legs hung over the ledge, below which were rocks and a thin strip of dirty sand. To the left, a rickety pier extended some 200 feet into the water, where black boys leaped, splashed, 
screamed and climbed back up to leap again. The garbage on the sand was mostly paper and bottles. No food garbage down here. Here, away from the tourist shops, away from the restaurants and offices, was that part of the boulevard where the sea threw up what it could not digest. Whatever life there is on the sand is desperate. A gull negotiated the breeze and swooped down on a black starfish. The gull pecked it, flew away, and returned to peck again and again until finally the starfish yielded the magenta string that was its heart. The man watched the gull tear it out with a great deal of interest. Then he swung his legs over the wall and stood up. Shielding his eyes from the sun with his arm, he looked toward the market crowd. A half block of cloth roofs, tables, baskets, pots, boxes, and trays. His jacket was draped across his forearm, both hands in his pockets, as he started toward the market looking for Therese. Earlier he had taken the shuttle bus from the airport to the Old Queen Hotel and gone directly from there up the hill to the powder-pink house, climbing slowly, carefully, keeping to the edge of the road where the dust gave way to grass. He moved like a man saving his strength or one suspicious of trip mines. No one was in the pink house. The door was latched, although the windows were open. A print skirt ripped down the back seam, hung from one of the front windows, and served it as both curtain and shade. He poked his head through and tossed a piece of hand luggage into the room. Then he walked back down the hill, nodding to a few passers-by, and stopped at the house that sold meat pies and rum and sometimes lent hair clippers. He didn't even try the little tin can French he'd learned in Vietnam. He simply said, Gideon? Therese? The owner and another man told him something he could not understand about Therese and mentioned Gideon's name in connection with taxi. He nodded and smiled as though it was all brilliantly clear and continued down the hill. The morning he spent walking the streets, looking at the elegant houses turned into restaurants or offices, and the colonial administration buildings built like castles to last. Away from the town to the north and east were the frightened houses of the whites, hiding on sloped rows behind hedges of tropical flora. South was the business district, collected mainly on Rue Madeleine and the tributaries running from it. The blacks lived in the western hills in shacks and cement block houses or along narrow streets on the west side of town where the sea spit up what it could not digest. It was unusually cool, and his weather eyes saw that a rainstorm might be due announcing the hurricane season. He walked the streets of Queen of France, glancing at the drivers of the taxis in case Gideon might be one. Three hours of walking, and he was not tired. Had not been tired for days now. Being still was the problem. In the apartment in New York, he could not sit for long, except to look again and again at the photographs she had taken in Elo. A fat yellow envelope of pictures had lain unopened on the coffee table, along with the keys. 
having nothing quiet to do with his huge hands except finger his original dime, he opened the envelope and looked at the pictures of all the places and people he had loved. Then he could be still. Gazing at the photos one by one, trying to find in them what it was that used to comfort him so, used to reside with him, in him like royalty in his veins, used to people his dreams and anchor his floating days. When danger was most imminent and he fell asleep in spite of himself, they were there, the yellow houses with white doors, the ladies at the pie table at Good Shepherd, Aunt Rosa, soldier's mother May Downing, whom they called Mama May, Drake's grandmother Winnie Boone, who switched them every spring, Miss Tyler, who had taught him how to play piano, and the younger women, Beatrice, Ellen, and the children who had been born while he was away. The men, old man, rascal, Turner and soldier, and Drake and Ernie Paul, who left the service of first lieutenant and now had his own mortuary in Montgomery, Alabama, and doing fine. There were no photos of them, but they were there in the pictures of trees behind their houses, the fields where they worked, the river they fished, the church where they testified, the joints where they drank. It all looked miserable in the photographs, sad, poor, and even poor-spirited. When he was not looking at the pictures, he had telephoned her friends and acquaintances. Her women friends knew nothing, but suggested he come over and talk about it, the men he would not call. So he paced, walked the streets, listened to the telephone that did not ring, waited for the mail, and finally made up his mind to go back to Ile de Chevalier. Start there in order to find her. He left the keys with the super and the photos on the table, and it was hard to sit still on the airplane, hard to sit still on the seawall, so he stood up and walked toward the market. Maybe Therese was there. The afternoon sun had knocked away the earlier chill, and the air was damp and much too warm. A smallish crowd of local buyers and tourists milled about the stalls and stands. There were more people selling than buying. He stopped before a tray of meat tarts thinking to buy one, but the smell turned his stomach and he moved away. Farther down, he could see crates of bright red bottles of soda. Something cold to drink, he thought, might be better. As he turned in that direction, he bumped into two young Germans with cameras. Automatically, he looked toward where their cameras were focused. There she was, hat intact, mouth moving a mile a minute, her broken eyes cheerfully evil. He stepped in front of the cameras and said no to the Germans, no, and shook his head. The young men looked angry for a second, and then, glancing at each other, shrugged and moved on. He stood close to Therese for a full minute before she recognized him and shrieked, Chocolate eater! Chocolate eater! Almost knocking her tray of smoked eels to the ground. This place is closed, she said to a would-be customer. Ferme, madame, ferme, and packed up her eels, her folding camp stool, and her wooden crate, none of which she would let him carry as they made their way up to the powder pink house. 
Therese laughed and chattered about the weather and her girlhood all the way, but once in the house, she became shy and formal, making him uncomfortable and unable to sit. To break the awkward atmosphere, he initiated a pointed conversation. Have you been back over there? he asked her. She spit on the floor for an answer and added nothing to it. He smiled. What work does Gideon do now? Hires out, she said, to taxi men. Drumming up business, he guessed, at airports and hotels for the men who owned their taxis. They would tip him for the fares he got them. Therese grew silent and formal again. Like a duenna, she avoided his eyes, but watched him nonetheless. Quietly, all she needed was lace in her hands, guarding some virtue that was only in her mind. The atmosphere of starch returned until he remembered something. He'd put his plastic-wrapped airplane snack in his hand luggage, a pastrami on a roll, a tiny packet of pasteurized cheese, one of mustard and an apple. He opened the bag and presented it to Therese, whose happiness, instead of being cheerful, was so deep it was solemn. Eat, he told her, but she wouldn't. She left everything just as it was, patting the saran wrap fondly. Then she turned to him and said, I was a pretty girl. He looked at her and thought perhaps it was so. Perhaps. He couldn't tell and didn't care. Pretty was inapplicable to what he liked about her. She repeated it. I was a pretty girl. I'm sure you were, he said, smiling. No one remembers now how I was. I was a pretty girl. A pretty girl. She patted the snack package, and he could see that there was some relationship between the present he had given her and her recollections of her youth and beauty. He thought she was going to go on about it, but she stopped and lingered with that thought, patting the plastic wrap tenderly. He had decided to excuse himself from the awkwardness and walk around outside when Gideon came in. The day's disappointment ran from his face as soon as he saw Sun. He put the paper bag he was carrying on the table and encircled Sun in his arms. What you doing back here? He wanted to know. I got a little business to attend to. Ile de Chevalier? Yes. Murder, I hope. Gideon took off his shirt and walked to the sink. Sun shook his head. I need some information. Gideon leaned over the sink washing his hands and face. When he had rinsed, Therese took a cloth from a nail and handed it to him. What you want to know? Gideon asked, drying his ears. If she's there, if she's not, I need an address. Christ, said Gideon, and snapped his cloth in disgust. I knew it. The yalla. What did I tell you? Huh? I have to find her. Son's voice was flat, stale. Therese, sitting by the record player, was rocking her head as though she were at a wake. When Sun said, I have to find her, in that emotionless voice, she began to accompany the rocking with soft grunts. Uh, 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 uh. Stop that, said Gideon. Fix some food, for Christ's sake. Therese stood up slowly, caressing her airplane food, and, after placing it on top of the dead record player, 
put a pot of water on to boil. She busied herself picking stones out of the rice while Gideon told Sun that the Yala was gone. She was here? How do you know? asked Sun. What black girl can take a plane here I don't know about? Besides, Alma Este saw her go. She cleans up at the airport. She saw her and spoke to her in the toilet there. Therese, go call Alma Este. I don't know where she is. Therese was reluctant to leave. At her mama's. Go on now. Then he said to son, A week ago, maybe less, Alma saw her leave. Let her leave, man. Let her go. Son looked at Therese as if to question why she tarried. She saw his impatience and, leaving her rice half-picked, left the house. Son was deeply depressed at that news. He had waited in New York too long before coming here, but he had been convinced that she was not really gone, as in never coming back. He thought, before long, she'd come banging in as she had done before. So he couldn't leave the apartment except for short spells. She'd call, and he would not be there. She'd ring the bell, and he would not be there. It took a week of silent pacing, of sleeplessness for him to decide to go looking. And from what Gideon said, it was a week ago that she was here. She must have left almost immediately. Gideon opened his paper bag and took out a bottle of beer. He sat down next to Son and offered it to him. You can get used to it, he said. After all those years in the States, I thought that was the only way, cold, ice cold. I still prefer it that way, but now I can drink it warm again, like before. Son looked at it. The very notion of warm beer in his empty stomach sickened him. He refused. You sick, man. Not just your head, either. Why can't you let her go? Let her go, asked Son, and he smiled a crooked smile. Let go the woman you had been looking for everywhere just because she was difficult? Because she had a temper, energy, ideas of her own, and fought back? Let go a woman whose eyebrows were a study, whose face was enough to engage your attention all your life? Let go a woman who was not only a woman but a sound, all the music he had ever wanted to play, a world and a way of being in it? Let that go? I can't, he said. I can't. Gideon swallowed his beer, and they were both quiet until Therese returned and the girl stepped in the door. Sun grew dizzy as soon as he saw her. He looked at the red-brown wig on her head, and the blood ran away from his own. It was all mixed up. He had it straight before, the pie ladies and the six-string banjo, and then he was seduced, corrupted by cloisonne and raw silk, the color of honey, and he was willing to change, to love the cloisonne, to abandon the pie ladies and the nickel Nickelodeon and Elo itself and Frisco too because she had given him back his original dime, the pretty one, the shiny one, the romantic ten-cent piece and made him see it the way it was, the way it really was, not just a dazzling coin but a piece of currency with a history rooted in gold and cloisonne and humiliation and death. So what was he doing loving Frisco and his dime 
when it had no value and didn't belong to Frisco anyway? And what was he doing thinking that Drake and Soldier and Ernie Paul were more precious than Catherine the Great's earrings, or that the pie ladies were in danger unless he alone protected them and kept them alive? So he had changed, given up fraternity, or believed he had, until he saw Alma Este in a wig the color of dried blood. Her sweet face, her midnight skin mocked and destroyed by the pile of synthetic dried blood on her head. It was all mixed up. But he could have sorted it out if she had just stood there like a bougainvillea in a girdle, like a baby jaguar with lipstick on, like an avocado with earrings, and let him remove it. Oh, baby, 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 he said, and went to her to take off the wig, to lift it, tear it, throw it far from her midnight skin and antelope eyes. But she jumped back, howled, and resecured it on her head with clenched fingers. It was all mixed up. He did not know what to think or feel. The dizziness increased and played a middle ear drone in his head. Gideon tapped him on the shoulder, and he sat down. Leave her be, he said. She want to look the fool letter. Ask her about the American girl. Alma, tell him. Alma told him, but from a distance, so he could not get his hands on her head again, so he could not deprive her of the red wig which she had to buy herself, because he had not sent her one as he promised to do and had not brought her one either when he came back, but had come, in fact, looking for the American girl whom he loved and remembered, but not her. He had forgotten all about her, and forgotten to bring her the one thing she had asked for. Oh, she was good enough to run to the store for him, and good enough to clean the toilet for American black girls to pee in, and to be tipped by them, but not have her name remembered by them, and not good enough to be remembered at all by the chocolate eater who did go to the trouble of knowing her name. She told him then that she worked in the airport cleaning, and that she had seen the American girl getting on a plane bound for Paris with a huge bag on her shoulder and a black fur coat, and that she had been met by a young man with yellow hair and blue eyes and white skin, and they had laughed and kissed and laughed in the corridor outside the ladies' room, and had held hands and walked to the plane, and she had her head on his shoulder the whole time they walked to the plane. She had seen it, and Sun saw it too, the mink-dark eyes staring greedily into blue ones, another hand on the inside of her raw silk knee, the color of honey. Not being able to go further with those pictures, he diverted his mind to the irrelevant, who was it? Was it Michael who met her, Valerian's son, the one that didn't show up for Christmas but who came later? Was that the Reek who sent her the coat? Or was it someone in New York who had come to the island with her? Or was it someone she met in the airport? It was all mixed up, like when he ran out of laughter ammunition and kicked an MP in the groin. But the thing that was clear was the thing he knew when he stood wrapped in a towel, gazing out of the window at this same man's back. He had not wanted to love her because he could not survive losing her. But it was done. Already done, and he was in it.
stuck in it, and revolted by the possibility of being freed. Gideon interrupted his questions. What will you do? Find her. Go to Paris and find her. He pressed his temples with his fingers to stop the drone. But if she's with another, I'll take her away from him. A woman, man, just a woman, said Gideon patiently. I have to find her. How? Paris is a big place. I'll get her address. Where? From over there? They won't give it to you. They will. I'll make them. Make them tell me who the man is, where she went. He was standing now, nervous, eager to get going. You not going for the address. You going to cause mayhem. Let him, said Therese. Kill them, chocolate eater. Don't be crazy. It's just a woman, man. It was true. He wanted to find her, but he wanted to smash something, too. Smash the man who took the woman he had loved while she slept, and smash where they had first made love, where she took his hand and was afraid and needed him, and they walked up the stairs holding hands, just like she walked to the plane holding somebody else's hand. She should not have done that if she was going to get on an airplane and put her head on another man's shoulder. Get me there, he said to Gideon, now while there's still light. Gideon ran his tongue over his stone-white teeth. No, I'm not doing that. Take you to smash up the place? I only want her address, that's all. You won't be welcome there, and neither me. I will only talk to them. And if they won't talk to you? They will. They'll tell me. No, man. That's final. All right. I'll take the launch. Good, said Gideon. Take the launch. In two days, maybe you'll be cooler. Two days? Two, yes. Launch don't go again till Monday. Today is market day, Saturday. I can't wait that long. Telephone them. They won't tell me anything on the telephone. Take me. This is crazy mad shit, man. You can't go there. I don't have a choice. There's nothing else for me to do. You think I'd choose this if I had a choice? Therese turned around and looked at him. Then she looked at the airplane food on the record player. I can take you, she said. You're not taking him nowhere. You're blind as a bat. I can take you, she repeated. The sun's going down. You'll drown, said Gideon. We'll fish you off the beach in the morning. I can see better in the dark, and I know that crossing too well. Don't trust her, man. Don't, I'm telling you. Son looked at Therese and nodded. Get me there, Therese. Two big fools, said Gideon. One blind, the other gone mad. Eat, said Therese to Son. I'll take you when it's time. Son stood up. I can't eat, he said, and I've been awake for days. Sleep won't come, and I can't get hungry. Come with me, then, said Gideon. Let's go out. Go to Grand Sank. Have a drink and relax a little. No, he said. I don't want a woman. Christ! Gideon was disgusted. He never got over being amazed at that kind of passion, though he had seen it enough. 
Well, rum's good anywhere. I resign from the sober world tonight. He went into the bedroom and returned with a pint of rum, the bottle half full. He poured and passed a cup to Sun, who took it in tiny sips, with much time in between. All three sat at the table, Sun alone not eating the fish and rice. Gideon told stories about women he had known, their wiles and their ways, till he settled on the nurse he'd married in the States. His grievances about the lady were trotted out one by one for show. Her children by a former marriage, her ailments, her habits of dress, her laugh, her relatives, her food, her looks. He allowed as how she was faithful, but that's all she was. Had she been otherwise, he swore he would never have left her out of gratitude. As it was, she was insatiable, mean, arrogant, and insatiable. He went to bed fully clothed on that note, the abnormal sexual hunger of black American nurses. Son lay down on the cot Alma Estee sometimes used while Therese got ready, and he did not know he slept until she woke him. He sat up, relieved that the jaw's harp in his head had stopped. She brought a flashlight, but they did not need it to walk down the hill or to find the Prix de France. They checked the gas and agreed there was enough for a round trip. They rode away from the dock until they were far enough out to start a motor without attracting the attention of any gendarmes who might be on contraband patrol. It was raining a little, getting foggier, but the sea was not high. Therese insisted on steering, for she knew the way, she said, and could not talk the directions to him. The feel of the current was what she went by. She only prayed no larger boats were out there, as hampered in vision as she was in the fog. He remembered the trip over as half an hour, 45 minutes at most, but this trip seemed longer. They'd been out at least an hour. The boat rocked and skipped, rocked and skipped to a regular beat. The Jaws harp was back like a nuthouse lullaby, and he dozed a little and woke, dozed a little and woke. Each time his eyes opened, they rested on the shadow of Marie-Thérèse Foucault. Each time her shoulders and profile grew darker, her outline fainter, till finally he could barely make her out at all. He simply felt her feet against his. Even her breathing could not be heard over the motor's breath and the insistent harp in his head. The light rain stopped, and the clouds descended to examine that party of two. One tranquil, dozing, weakly fighting sleep. The other head turned landward, intent on a horizon she could not possibly see, even if she were not as blind as justice. Her hands on the lever were nimble, steady. The upper part of her body leaned forward, straining as if to hear fish calling from the sea. Behind the curious clouds, hills crouched on all fours, and at their knees were rocks and the permanent sea. Therese cut the motor and dropped one oar to guide with. The tide carried them, and the little boat seemed to be floating on its own. She held the oar midships until it struck a rock, split, and slowed the boat to a half-turn, and then a rocking on baby waves. Sun stirred and opened his eyes. There was nothing to see, not sky or island or Marie-Therese. 
The sea was very still, as in a lagoon or a cove. Here, she said. We are here. Where? All he could see was mist. Where's the dock? On the other side. We are at the back of Ile des Chevaliers. You can climb here on the rocks. They are all together here, like a bridge. You can crawl them all the way to shore. It's too foggy, he said. I can't see my way. Don't be afraid. This is the place, on the far side. I can't see shit. I can hardly see you. Don't see. Feel, she said. You can feel your way, but hurry, hurry. I have to get back. This doesn't make sense. Why don't you go to the other side where the dock is? No, she said. This is the place. Ile des Chevaliers? Yes, yes, the far side. Are you sure? Positive. Sun took his tie out of his jacket pocket and began to knot it around the handle of his traveling bag. I don't get it, Therese. You bring me here as a favor, but before I can say thanks, you make it hard for me to land and even harder to get to the house. What'd you do that for? This is the place where you can take a choice. Back there, you say you don't. Now you do. What the hell are you talking about? If I get off these rocks without drowning, I have to stomp all around in those hills to get to the other side. It must be, good God, ten miles. I'll be all night and half the day. Hurry, get out. I have to get away before the water is too small. He attached the tie to his waist so the bag hung from behind him. Then he moved over to negotiate the rocks. It's easy, she said. Climb to it, and the next one is right behind, then another, and another, like a road, then the land. You sure, Therese? Yes, yes, she said. Then, as he turned toward the rocks, she touched his back. Wait, tell me, if you cannot find her, what will you do? Live in the garden of some other white people house? He looked around to tell her to mind her own business. But the inability to see her face in the fog stopped him. Small boy, she said, don't go to L'Arbre de la Croix. Her voice was a calamitous whisper coming out of the darkness toward him like jaws. Forget her. There is nothing in her parts for you. She has forgotten her ancient properties. He swallowed and, saying nothing, turned back to the rocks, kneeling. Stretching his hand to feel them, he touched one. It was dry above the water line and rough, but large enough, it seemed to him, to hold a grown man. He leaned out of the boat, tipping it so it took a little water. The bag knocked clumsily against his thigh. He sat back down and undid the knot. Keep it for me, he said. Then he grabbed with both hands the surface of the rock. And heaved himself onto it. He lay there for a bit, then stretched his arm again and felt the sister rock at his fingertips. Now he could smell the land. Hurry, she urged him. They are waiting. Waiting? Who's waiting? Suddenly he was alarmed. The men, the men are waiting for you. She was pulling the oars now, moving out. You can choose now. 
you can get free of her. They are waiting in the hills for you. They are naked, and they are blind, too. I have seen them. Their eyes have no color in them, but they gallop. They race those horses like angels all over the hills where the rainforest is, where the champion daisy trees still grow. Go there. Choose them. She was far from him now, but her voice was near like skin. Therese, he shouted, turning his head around to the place where the urging of her jaws had come from. Are you sure? If she answered, he could not hear it, and he certainly couldn't see her, so he went. First he crawled the rocks, one by one, one by one, till his hands touched shore and the nursing sound of the sea was behind him. He felt around, crawled off, and then stood up. Breathing heavily with his mouth open, he took a few tentative steps. The pebbles made him stumble, and so did the roots of trees. He threw out his hands to guide and steady his going. By and by he walked steadier, now steadier. The mist lifted, and the trees stepped back a bit as if to make the way easier for a certain kind of man. Then he ran, lickety-split, lickety-split, looking neither to the left nor to the right, lickety-split, lickety-split, lickety-lickety-lickety-split. This concludes the reading of Tar Baby by Toni Morrison. Copyright 1981 by Toni Morrison. Context of white supremacy. We are all done. Right to the point. No second audio segment. Grey's Anatomy. Something for Thursday night. We'll have other things to do. Uh, One thing we can do is be thinking of a book for next week. Many Cows listeners have voted over the years and suggested repeatedly 48 Laws of Power. I said we should just do that, get that one out of the way so we can move forward. Uh, If folks have a different offering, Harriet A. Washington does have a new book on racism that one way or another will be addressed soon. Uh, But book for next week, since we're all done here. Uh, I was thinking 48 Laws of Power, but Folks, have another thought. Feel free to share. I will have a decision as to what it is by Tuesday so people can get a book uh, if they want the hard copy and all that. But new book for next week. This book, Tar Baby, number again, 605-313-5164. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, we are all done. Folks have concluding thoughts. The symbolism of the tar baby. What does that mean? Now that we have read the whole book and heard it mentioned a few times. What does that mean? The thoughts last week on uh, the soldier ant as Jadine was dumping son. And she gives this long kind of mon- uh, monologue about soldier ants and just doing what they do. You get the semen to procreate from the male. He dies, you discard him, and then you just go about the business uh, of the colony. Uh, But if folks have thoughts on that or what else has been presented, loneliness, 
I'll share uh, one of our listeners wrote in. Uh, He said the passage about New York City in Chapter 7 resonated with me since I lived there during that time period. To provide context, the author was writing about a period just prior to the AIDS and crack era in New York City. For a young black woman during that era, Jadine, a fashion model and graduate of the Sorbonne, New York City seemingly provided a lot of opportunities and possibilities. The author is skilled in providing details which capture the time period. Max's Kansas City, an iconic avant-garde nightclub, RVR, a.k.a. WRVR, a popular jazz fusion FM radio station of that era, and the BLS, a.k.a. WBLS, a popular black-oriented radio station, and home of the legendary black DJ Frankie Crocker, uh, Paella, a Cuban dish, may be representing a nod to Victor's Cafe, a longtime Cuban restaurant on the west side of Manhattan. I spoke with a black woman of an age, education, and artistic bent similar to Jadine, who lived in New York City during that time period, and she agreed with my thoughts. With the benefit of hindsight, I now realize that feelings I had at the time were all an illusion since New York City has never been a black woman's town. Not a black male's town, not a black child's town. The empire state, as they call it, of white supremacy racism. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Final thoughts. Tony Morrison's Tar Baby. Folks who dialed in, uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Feel free to participate. Yes, Rabbi. Greetings, Mr. Demi Four. Yes, greetings, Gus, and greetings to the other callers and listeners. I did think about the uh, metaphor of the soldier ants, and I did a little research. What I came up with is, just like you said, the the sperm, the uh, queen, which is the, she said, the Amazon, you know, and using the male to procreate and then uh, discarding him. And the similarity is the role of the female um, as far as bearing, hunting, eating, fighting, burying, you know, being very busy and... um, you know, just some symbolism to uh, females in this society. And the discarding or the male uh, dropping dead, you know, she said that she may wonder whether his death was sudden or did he languish, or if so, if there was a bit of time left, did he think how mean the world was or did he fill the space of time thinking of her? And then, I, and that's when he goes into about the, or she goes in with the soldier ants. Uh, but I thought about that little passage, and, you know, at the time that <clears throat> uh, the ant, the male ant, 
knows that I guess he's going to die. And then to the time that he actually dies, she's wondering if he languish or if he thinks about her. And I was thinking about that on the context context of uh, white supremacy. It's like when we find out that the purpose of this society is our genocide and it's killing us until the time that they are successful, what do we do with that time in between there that we uh, that we recognize what was going on. Uh, did we spend it thinking about the object of our destruction? Or did we just languish? You know, that was just my thoughts on that. I, I could be wrong. But later on, and they talked about when he got back to the island, I guess she left him unexpectedly. And she didn't tell him where he was going, so he was frantically searching for her. And then when he got to the island, uh, he noticed the blacks lived in the western hills and shacks and cement block houses and along narrow streets on the west side of town where the sea spit up but it could not digest. And I just thought about, like we had said before, how white people... The system of white supremacy has made the world as non-white know it, or black people globally live in these type situations in squalors and shacks and shanties all over the globe in the most undesirable uh, regions, not the coastal beach areas where they uh, possess. The white people possess most of those prime. Uh, property spots. And <clears throat> I guess it's noteworthy that the way Gideon felt when he saw uh, Son again, he was hoping that his business over on the uh, island was the murder. I guess that's the way he felt about Valerian after he fired him right at Christmas time over a few apples. Um, and he also said something that brought the light to the environment of what black girl can take a plane here that I don't know about besides Alma, that's they saw her go. Well, I guess he's getting reference to, although that's probably, that's an island mostly inhabited by black people, just to take a plane would be such a monumental event that people would know about it. So uh, we get an idea of what's going on. And before Son left and he saw Alma say in the wig, I think that he wanted to take the wig off of her and just let her know that, you know, she looked fine with her natural appearance and her natural hair and in a system to where they make you a uh, black female feel insecure about her features, you know, I think it would be wise if, you know, we would embrace uh, our images and then encourage our female uh, victims that 
uh, it's fine to look natural, and you're beautiful that way. So uh, it went on. They revealed why he got kicked out of the service. He kicked the MP in the in the groins. I, and it's it's funny the way she described it. He was using laughter as ammunition to get through this. You know, you know it was a a horrible. Uh, racial, uh, just, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it must have been like for him in service at that time. He was using laughter to get through, and then I, it ran out, and he just exploded. He's, he has a problem. He has a violent tendency because although he was looking for J.D., he wanted to smash something that said. He wanted to smash the man that took his woman. And uh, a little bit more insight on him. And then uh, the way that victims respond to uh, things that happen to them. <laughs> and it struck me that Gideon would describe his ex-wife uh, when he was talking about the grievances he had, that's almost everything about a person that he didn't like. Uh, I guess her ailments, her habits, her dress, the way she laughed, her relatives, her food, the way she looked. It was nothing, you know, that it seemed would endear him to her for him to marry her, but then, in the end, like I say, it's all uh degraded to uh sexuality and uh his ability sexually because she couldn't be satisfied and he made a note of it after going to bed fully clothed <laughs> of the abnormal sexual hunger of black american nurses another stereotype of the black female um, okay, I'll meet my line on that, Gus. Give somebody else a chance. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demry, for getting our final thoughts in on Tar Baby. Uh, Henry in Chicago should be with us as well. Star 6-1 for other folks if you have questions, comments. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, in regards to the last section uh, of the book, um, <clears throat> it seems like uh, everybody on the uh, when when Sun comes back to that part of the world, uh, it seems like everybody is kind of content on uh, on on their conditions, uh, being content living in the system of white supremacy. Um, I believe uh, Mr. Jim before had mentioned about Alma and her wig, and it basically seems like she was just content on wearing, you know, the wig that, you know, she, she paid for. Uh, even though Son is the only person uh, on the island who is not content with this situation. Obviously, he's trying to find Jadine, and trying to go where she's at. But yeah, it seems like everybody's content and Sun is very anxious uh, because 
you know, because of the fact that he is not content with the living conditions he's in. Um, the end of the story kind of tails towards blindness. Um, son is in a fog. Uh, Therese, uh, apparently when Therese uh, volunteered to take son to the island, um, we see Gideon calling her blind. Uh, and then he takes he takes son to the uh, uh, where the uh, the horsemen are, uh, and I think this was referenced early in the book as well uh, about the horsemen who were blind. Uh, so you know that's an interesting theme of blindness, and then and then like I said, going through a fog as well. Um, in regards to the uh, in regards to the worker ants. Uh, that to me, I, I looked over it again, and that to me kind of sounds like, uh, kind of sounds like uh, single motherhood, um, which is a uh, which is a a, a, an, a uh, basically an effect of racism, white supremacy. You kill off the males, and basically the females are the only ones there to kind of raise the children. So. Uh, that to me sounds like a single motherhood in, you know, uh, amongst non-white black people. Um, I mean, that's the metaphor I kind of got out of it. And I wanted to go back to uh, an earlier uh, discussion in regards to uh, Toni Morrison's uh, uh, biblical references. Now, um, I found this book which basically kind of talks about uh, um, the book is called Tony Morrison in the Bible. And it's basically uh, essays of Tony Morrison's novels and, uh, and also to uh, uh, how she references the Bible in, in some of, in, in, in all of her works. And I wanted to read this short, this paragraph about Tar Baby in one of the essays. And it says uh, in Tar Baby, the African-American folktale in which the white farmer uses the tar baby to catch burr rabbit is single as an explicit intertext. This novel is an attempt to rethink blackness and its relation to class. But in my reading, the implied presence of the Bible again creates tension. The novel contains an ironic overwriting and revision of Genesis. Isle de Chevalier is reminiscent not only of the biblical paradise, but also of a landscape that unfolded itself before the pilgrims landing in America. This Eden in which apples are a luxury may be welcoming to Son, but not to Jadine. In this empire, Valerian rules as a self-appointed god, uh, apples belonging to Valerian's household, and Therese has to steal when she craves them. Geese replace the pilgrims, wild turkeys, and Valerian gains knowledge of good and evil, that is, his wife's abuse of his son. This instant of dual intersexuality may serve again as a representation of the doubleness of African-American racial identities. So I remember reading this. Uh, when I when, when I was thinking about the biblical themes, and I was thinking about I was thinking about the Garden of Eden story in Genesis, and uh, apparently this paragraph kind of uh, this paragraph kind of uh, uh, 
kind of came out of about my original thought, but I wasn't like really too sure about you know about it. But then again, I went to the uh, I went to the uh, I started looking at that uh, verse that uh, Toni Morrison had uh, when she began the book, First uh, Corinthians chapter one verse eleven, uh, in regards to uh, uh, for it's been reported to me about you, my brothers, about Chloe's people, and I was looking at a text, uh, kind of like a, a biblical commentary on it. And basically, it talks about uh, Paul addresses the problem about the divisions within the community. And I kind of thought about how everybody uh, in this story, uh, due to the system of white supremacy, how everybody's divided. And I think I, I referenced this before in regards to Jadine and Son being, you know, being so divided uh, up to the point of violence. And all because of Valerian, you know, they're both arguing about this white man. And this is what the system of white supremacy kind of, you know, does to us in regards to that. And, and you know, what's so interesting in this commentary where it talks about uh, Paul and the Corinthians, it, 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 they were talking about some, uh, some people who came to Corinth and basically gave them misinformation about, you know, the gospel. And this is what the system of white supremacy does to us in regards to, you know, giving us misinformation and giving us stereotypes about ourselves. Uh, you have, you know, um, you have Aunt Dean and Sydney, you know, calling son a low-down nigga and, you know, uh, son basically kind of just, uh, you know, in some instances when he's mad at Jay Dean, calling her dick-sucking whore or something like that and, J.D., you know, having derogatory, you know, terms against, you know, son. And so, you know, all of this is due to the, the, the conditions of, 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 of racism that, you know, they've all been subjugated to. And what's also interesting is, is you know, the, the places that, that, that everybody goes to, uh, well, the places that the novel has also uh, go to. So, when Son and Jadine go to the United States, it their their relationship takes like a takes like this huge turn for the worse. Um, even though you know we're told that you know America is the you know the land of milk and honey and you know whatever you know metaphors white people like to tell us about you know America. Uh, but it seems like it, it takes its turn for the worse when they get to uh, when they get to the United States. Also, too, you know, I also uh, basically talk about how, you know, uh, you, you know, it's funny how uh, we as victims, you know, consider, you know, our sections of uh, of the plantation the best. And Jay Dean, you know, arguing about New York, and you know, uh, uh, son arguing about LOE and and how how great those places are. And it's so interesting how when Jadine went to Eloi, you know, it, she became very distraught about the whole thing. And, and Son, when he went to New York, he was kind of like the same way as well, where he just, you know, didn't like New York. And it basically kind of changed his attitude uh, about everything. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting, the, the, the scene changes and how, how, it, how it basically makes people react 
Uh, and also, too, with Valerian uh, going to the island uh, and how he kind of changes his thought and, uh, about, you know, about everything. So scenery does, you know, scenery does, uh, does change folks in a way. But um, that's all I have right now, Meet My Life. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Uh, great uh, outside report uh, with the uh, kind of biblical themes. We had talked about that biblical uh, Bible verse at the beginning of the book and then uh, the uh, Garden of Eden type ejection that uh, Therese and uh, Gideon suffer at the hands of Valerian. I was at the grocery store yesterday in the bulk section and I was getting turmeric. Uh, I got bulk turmeric and the clerk was there and she was standing in front of Valerian root. And I was like, Oh wow, we're doing the book club tomorrow. She says, Oh, look at that Valerian root. Do you need some of that? I said, no, I do not. She says, and that's supposed to be good to help you sleep. And I said, yep, that's what they say. I checked and very, yep. That is what it's supposed to be good for putting you to sleep. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we've not heard from. Final thoughts. We are all done with Tar Baby today. Final summations, questions, things that stood out from the last section. Proceed. May be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, good evening. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, a couple of things I wanted um, I want to uh, share. Um, foremost, I, I really did enjoy this book. Is is um, I had I had not read any of Miss Morrison's work previously, and I'm glad I had done so. Um, let me see where would I want to start. Uh, I want to start. I guess start like I said. Start with the ending of last week's uh, segment. We was talking about the uh, he's focusing on the, um, the the Queen Ant passage, and um, I was wondering, I, some of some of my my uh, research has generated that Miss Morrison has been Miss um, Andrick, and I I did detect that in that in that passage illustrated. By the the queen ant queen ant passage is the women that do all the work and the women the men are only useful as spongebob so I want to present that I don't know if you presented your your views as yet and then I thought about the central tension of the so-called modern black womanhood versus the tradition and then one uh one protagonist thinking the other ones need nephew. And it was um, the last one I want to share was um, the, the horseman myth, how it was um, presented in a white view. It was the, the Frenchman with the, the chevaliers, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and the other was, it was black slaves who had became blind, but who were riding through the thing. I was wondering, um, I have to research these. Uh, but I'm just wondering allow if this was a somehow a basis of a myth or if this is something that Ms. Morrison created. Um, and last, oh, one more thing. Um, the thing I was thinking that 
Jadine choosing white vindication over liberation that I think Sun had offered her. And I was, I thought those are some of the things that really stuck out to me. But I really did enjoy this book, and I, I'm, I'm glad I I'm, I'm, uh, was able to share my views. I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, thanks for uh, dialing in to share your thoughts on the book. And uh, definitely, if you have not read Miss Morrison's work, I'm glad you were exposed. Uh, she's written so much. Uh, the Bluest Eye, that is in my top 10. Uh, we read that way back, 2012. It is in the archives. Uh, but yeah, I would encourage definitely check out the bluest eye i think that's substantially better than this book and spends a lot more direct time uh talking about racism white supremacy and how it's <clears throat> manifest in some of the very behaviors that we saw in this book uh, and how <clears throat> the black characters uh treat each other uh, especially the way that son has talked about called a nigger and all of that and wild uh, and the rest of it, I think a lot of that uh, is the why of that is addressed, I think, explicitly and in a really artful manner in uh, The Bluest Eye. Like, super, super glad we had the opportunity to read that uh, on the book club. Uh, let me see. Right on. Star Six One. If other folks, concluding thoughts, questions they want to make sure they get in. Uh, let's see. Getting to some of my notes from, and again, we don't have a second audio segment, so once and we are done. Uh, but getting to some of my notes, uh, I went back to last week because last week we ended with the section on the soldier ants as Jadine has dumped Sun riding off into the sunset, reflecting on her experience. And <clears throat> with the way that the black male was discarded, the black ant, excuse me, the black male ant, the male ant was discarded uh, in comparison to the discarding of the black male son uh, in the book. And it's, it, in my view, it's not just that scene. It's kind of the entire book. Like I said uh, at the beginning, it's not even just this book. I listed, you know, a lot of other books, but I mean, I said earlier on in this book study, which black male character, you know, do you want to be in this book? Do you want to be son, uh, who's kind of like a marooned slave, uh, thief, potential rapist, and at his best is reduced to, uh, a really good sex machine, James Brown. Uh, do you want to be yard man? People won't even call you by your name. You're just going to be yard man. Also a rapist. They said he was with a 14-year-old girl uh, who gets fired for stealing apples. Have to flag down taxis for other people. Maybe you get a tip for that. Uh, let's see. You could be Sydney. You're an old slave, basically, uh, and you feed a white man potatoes uh, and don't even have enough money to have your wife can retire when she's old and her feet hurt. She has to work with a child abusing racist. Uh, even, you know, when she's old, you can be Sydney uh, and call other black people niggers. Um, that's, that's about your choices. Like, and two of the three black characters that you get in the book are rapists. I mean, 
or accused of rapist, at least son uh, thought of repeatedly by white people and black people as a potential rapist. And I just said yard man. Um, and uh, son doesn't even have a name. Like that's the main character. Like, I mean, Jadine, they have such, I said that pay it in the book, like with the uh, cornucopia of names, Valerian, Jadine, Ondine, Margaret, and then son like he didn't even get a name <laughs> like i just feel like wow like the the new york is not a black man's town isle de chavez is not a black man's town elo is not a black man's town like paris is not a black man's town that's for rick um i mean even the way it ends i said wow like i mean if that's where we are last week last week was the last official chapter in the book all this i guess is an epilogue that we got this week but I mean, if this is how the book is going to end, uh, son gets compared to a soldier ant who's going to be discarded and killed after the semen has been extracted. And we wonder about what his last thoughts were before he dies. Uh, and then our memory of son is going to be, wow, he fucked well. And then she rides off into the sunset with a seal sin- seal skin coat and a white man might not even be Rick, might just be any other random white man. And son is stuck in the fog. Like, <laughs> what am I? Don't what am I to think? Like, uh, ye, like <laughs> the representation of of black males in the text is nothing to uh, is lacking, to put it mildly. I'll I'll put it that way. Uh, and in fact, I was thinking today. Whew, there's a lot in common with the hate you give, like painfully so in common with that text, like Khalil is shot and killed. Son doesn't meet that fate, but he's still kind of discarded as the black female who's smart. Isn't that the main character of the hate you give? She's smart. She goes off and gets all the education with white people and she can go get a Rick, just like the main character in the hate you give, go get you a white man. And you walk off into the sunset with a cool white man. Maybe uh, the hate you give. Maybe she could get a seal skin coat too. But just uh, it's a lot in common uh, with the book. Um, the hate you give, I thought. And uh, I guess notes from this week specifically. Uh, I thought the whole scene where it was described uh when son comes back and is I'm going to I'm going to find Jadine where did she go I'm going to find her I'm going to find her and uh so Therese says oh well uh Alma she works at the airport so she can let you know what the deal is so she says uh, she told him that she she worked in the airport cleaning and that she had seen now take what uh has already been shared most of the people who can afford to come here are white on an island that is overwhelmingly populated by dark people. But most of the people who can afford to take a uh, plane here would be classified as white. And if you're at the airport, it's a surprise unless you work there cleaning the toilets. I think that's still probably the case. Uh, 2019, 2020 about to be. I think that's still to a high degree the case. Probably a lot more black people can afford to fly today, but still traveling leisure type traveling is racist culture uh, but she told him she had been cleaning the airport 
uh, and that she had seen the American girl getting on a plane bound for Paris with a huge bag on her shoulder and a black fur coat that she had been met by a young man with yellow hair and blue eyes and white skin, the bluest eye. Woo! And they laughed and kissed and laughed. And take that with what we just heard about son. He lost his laughter. They laughed and laughed and laughed and kissed in the corridor outside the ladies' room and held hands and walked to the plane. And she had her head on his shoulder the whole time they walked to the plane. She had seen it and son saw it too. The mind, dark eyes to the blindness again, staring greedily into the blue ones. Another hand on the inside of her raw silk knee, the color of honey. Like that is, I mean, wow. <laughs> like, woof. You have been dumped, brother. Let it go. Let it go. And she didn't just dump. You got dumped for a white man. I saw them. They were having a grand old time. Like, let it. Let me draw you a complete picture of how well you have been dumped. Like, woof. No easy letdown for son. Um, that even that last sentence, though, she had seen it and son saw it too. The mind dark eyes staring greedily into blue ones. If I'm reading that correctly, that would have to be Jadine. Mind, dark eyes, staring greedily into blue ones. Hmm. Any thoughts on that one before I get to the rest of my uh, highlights? Uh, oh, and the laughter part that was mentioned right a couple lines down. She definitely wanted that to be connected. Jadine is laughing it up with a white man and son is kicking white people in the groin when there is no laughter. In Vietnam, in a war, no less. He's in killing people, no laughter, and kicking folks in the groin while she is laughing it up with a white man in a sealskin coat. But any any thoughts on that sentence? Uh, the mind, dark eyes staring greedily into blue ones? Folks want to think about it, that's fine, too. I'll check back later. Let's see. I did think that was important, the uh, laughter running out, and then uh, he kicked the MP in the growing. Uh, something, it just seemed like a Welsing moment, like a black male directly attacking a white man's genitals, which seems like a rare thing. Dr. Welsing used to say that all the time. You don't find incidents of black people cutting off the genitals of white people. Might be why white people make such a big deal out of female genital mutilation. Not that I'm, you know, saying anything is correct about that. It is not, but anyway, you don't see often reports of black people attacking the genitals of white people. Uh, but boop. Uh, lots of the other way around. Uh, I thought to Mr. Demery's point, uh, about where well, I guess several folks mentioned uh, the violence uh, and son gets upset and wants wants to smash something, even though he's saying that he wants to find uh, Jadine uh, and maybe smash up this blue eyed white man uh, that she's with. Uh, and uh, Therese, she says, kill them. And she's still calling him chocolate eater. He doesn't have a name still. He's just being called a chocolate eater. Uh, that's kind of another Wellsing moment, too. Um <clears throat> But I thought that was important as well. I thought there was so much uh, violence 
between or so much violence uh black characters directing violence at other black characters there were so many like brawl scenes with jadine uh and son uh sydney was patrolling the house with his gun ready to kill uh shoot and kill uh son uh presumably uh just it seemed like there were a lot of uh different moments in the book uh and then the the violent speech black people calling other black people nigger and talking really bad about them it just seemed like there was so much of that uh in the book uh and to then have a black person promoting uh another black person to do some killing uh even i'm uh even leaving out uh the scene where uh Andine, uh, has the smackdown on Margaret because that is, you know, counter violence. But there's a lot of black violence, black people being violent with other black people physically uh, or verbally. Uh, let's see. I thought it was important uh, that was mentioned Henry in Chicago about the blindness not being able to see, but it would seem to be it's that line, the mind, or make sure I get the sentence correct, mind dark. I think that's the way she stated it. Yeah, mind dark eyes. That's wow. Mind dark eyes. There seems like there's a lot of blindness manifest in a lot of different ways uh, as we're going down the uh, conclusion of the text. Blindness manifest in uh, a myriad uh, of ways. I was even thinking about the the metaphor of the tar baby in all of this, particularly the last exchange that Sun has with Jadine, where he's talking about the tar baby uh, before she leaves and saying wow what is what is that implicating uh what what is being suggested here particularly with the ending of the book being what it is and she kind of is like i said going off into the sunset with a yellow-haired blue-eyed white man and a black seal skin coat uh what is that what is that saying about the the tar baby um yeah, it's one I'm, I would even have to think on uh, a little bit in the system of, of racism, white supremacy, and how victims can be uh, manipulated uh, against our own best interest uh, and against other victims of white supremacy. Um, you have to think about that. Any any thoughts on the on the significance of the seal skin coat? I looked those up online today. They are pricey, like thousands of dollars if you want to get a seal skin coat and it's apparently kind of challenging to even purchase them uh, or have them shipped in the United States but I guess it is possible and that is you know something to flaunt if you can do it check out my seal skin don't touch uh, any thoughts on the significance of the seal skin coat in the book can I be hurt Yes, sir. Um, the only uh, the one thing that that comes to my mind with the seal skin coat is basically kind of like a so-called status in this system, um, because you know certain you know non-white black people may drive you know a Mercedes or Lexus or whatever that they might think they made it, uh, or some you know. Some of us who may think that just because we get a particular education, um, think that we made, you know, we made it. Um, but in reality, in the system of white supremacy, you know, we're we're just niggas. So that's that's the one thing that I took away from that. 
Nigga with a seal skin coat. Thank you, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, any other thoughts on the seal skin coat? Yes. I was thinking the seal skin coat may have been a gift from Reek uh, as to make up to her or to keep her under his spell, so to speak, because uh, I think the book mentioned he had taken uh, an Asian girl on a weekend, and so now she's visiting the island. She could have left because of that, and then he sent the gift along to maybe change her mind. That was my thoughts on it. Hmm. Interesting. 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 Someone who is referred to uh, Gideon, uh, aka Yardman, uh, calls her Yala uh, in the book, uh, but she has this super black sealskin coat from a white man with yellow hair and blue eyes. Uh, let's the the portion where Therese, where she says, forget her. She's talking to Sun. Uh, forget her. There's nothing in her parts for you. She has forgotten her ancient properties. I thought that was important. Uh, in a book named after a fable, uh, saying that she has forgotten her ancient properties, uh, and particularly in light of what uh, Undine had to say last week about, you know, the type of woman that she wanted uh, J.D. to be and, you know, to not forget about them and not to feel obligated either. Um, but I thought that was substantial uh, and almost seeming like that is the uh, designed result of white supremacy, racism. You get all this so-called uh, education that serves to make you uh, more useful to maintaining uh, the system of white supremacy and totally robs you of black self-respect uh, and can increase your white validation uh, to the point that you reject other black people, even some of the black people who were most helpful uh, and you being able to get, you know, whatever quote unquote success uh, or education uh, that you have. Um, yeah, but I thought that was an important line as well. Uh, let's see. There was something of uh, when we get to the very end here and Sun ends and he's just running like we we meet him and he's basically we don't know if he's a slave or, or what. That's the condition that we meet him at the beginning of the book and then we end and it's Invisible Man again. We've got another nigger on the run uh, and at worst a nigger on the run chasing uh, a black female lover who is with a white man on the other side of the world. I mean, oof. <laughs> like, oh man, that was, I mean, it's kind of a rough ending uh, if you have any attachment to Sun. I guess if you don't have any attachment to Sun, I guess it might feel on on how we feel about Sun's character in the book. Uh, it, I, I thought there were some overtones uh, a little bit of when he was upset and talking about wanting to smash something of with Cheyenne and how he ended up driving the car into the house and ended up killing her, even though that wasn't the, the plan, but the same type of energy uh, I kind of echoed. Uh, I did want to also say really quick as well, I thought there, 
I think there's a substantial difference in Jadine's discomfort, like on the island. She doesn't like the island. She didn't like Elo. She likes New York. She likes Paris. Um, I thought there was a substantial difference in Sun liking Elo or him being a little bit more comfortable uh, in the island because Jadine, when she's in Elo, it's not like she's despised. People aren't mistreating her. It talks about how a lot of people were jealous and wanted to know where she got her clothes from. And, you know, where did you get your shoes from? And it talks about how the guys thought she was so attractive and were looking at her behind in the dress and everything. It's not like she was being mistreated or abused. She just didn't like it there. That's substantially different from Sun's situation where he is forced to, uh, subject himself to brute work like he can't even live it's not like uh he's got lots of friends and people being nice to him and people want to know where he got his clothes at and they want to want to hang out with him that's not the case at all like he's having a difficult time uh existing uh in new york remember he even tries to go up and stop when the the young black girl robs them but he tries to go up and stop when she's having a dispute with the black guy and she's being all mean and nasty. And he just tries to goes up to stop that. And, and she's being all hostile. I mean, people are just hostile. You can't even get a job uh, in New York. I feel like it's, it's and even on the Island. It's the same thing. It's not like people are just nice to him. They think he's a rapist, white people, black people. He's a wild beast of some sort. Uh, Jadine spits on him <laughs> when they have one of their early encounters. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's substantially different. Like there's no place, even even uh, in Elo, he's on the run. Like you know, even there, <laughs> he's got a he's got a woman who sleeps with a shotgun <laughs> to kill him. Like it's it's substantially different. The world that they live in and operate when they go to places and you know like it or dislike it, it's substantially different. Like I don't remember anybody sleeping with a gun to kill. Uh, Jadine. Uh, yeah. Anywho, uh, other folks, any other concluding thoughts, questions they want to make sure they get in on Tar Baby? I would like to point out when Undine was bringing up those events from the past where Margaret abused her son, she told on being that she should have stopped her. I think that's a pattern that should be brought up that white people uh, will tell their so-called black friend, if you see me do anything racist, I want you to call me out for that. You know, let me know. That is not our job to call them out, you know, to watch out for them when they practice racism and let them know, they already know what they're doing. And if you are in that role where you are there to call out a so-called white friend, you need to re-examine that because uh, I think that that is one of the ways that we're used in that tar baby uh, capacity. Uh, I think that being used as a tar baby is uh, similar to being uh, played. And I'll meet my line on that. 
Much obliged, Mr. Demery, for a retired firefighter. I think we missed him totally. Uh, If you have a thought or two, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I, uh, no, I I, uh, I don't have a, a thought on the book. I uh, kind of like lost track of the uh, the reading, so I, I wouldn't uh, be able to comment on it. But what I was I was just waiting for uh, you guys to uh, to finish up, and uh, I was going to make a suggestion for another book. I did ask about that as well. Much obliged. Thank you for the reminder. Uh, once we are done, we will make sure to ask for suggestions for next week because we do need a new book. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate margaret kind of disappeared completely i guess valerian did too for the most part uh in the last little bit of the reading not that they needed to be present for the whole time but i guess that whole portion of the text being done um yeah, I'm having to remember back to, to last week and thinking about the book on the whole to see if I have any other thought. I think I do think that that is an important point. What Mr. Demery Ford just raised about uh, Margaret saying, you know, why didn't you uh, help me? Uh, and, and almost as though she was putting some of the blame on uh, Dean for her abusing her own white child, Michael, uh, that that is very common. Uh, and I would also encourage black people to uh, resist when that is offered. And in fact, you can even list that as an act of racism because uh, it, it again, it suggests that white people are ignorant, that they do these things without knowledge, which is not the case at all. And that that also that we talked about that. I know Dr. Kevorkian, we talked about that. That's present in so many ways in uh literature, narratives, film, different uh, cultural narratives of white supremacy uh, requiring black people to help white people. Why didn't you help me? You should have helped me. Uh, and she was saying she was all old. You should have helped me. We talked about that with Black Mirror. comes up over and over. We got it at the end as well. Sydney. that's why I said about Sydney, the black male character. That's how it ends. He's feeding him uh, Valerian potatoes. That's his. That's my wrap up. I can't even get a house for my wife or make sure that we're taken care of. Have to hope that we don't get fired for stealing apples uh, and hope we can stay in your good graces. Come on, let me feed you some baked potato, Mr. Valerian. I mean, uh, Mr. Street. Helping white people, helping white people. Uh, Any other thoughts? Uh, Folks wanted to make sure they get in. Um, Can I bear it? Henry in Chicago. Yeah. Um, the reaction of darkness between Sun and Jadine was pretty interesting. Uh, Sun has a totally different reaction to darkness. You know, he was camping out in the, you know, in the closet, in the dark. And then you had the situation with Jadine when she was in Elo and, uh, 
she was in uh, uh, in the in the one woman's house where it was very dark, and she kind of panicked with you know that particular darkness. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that might be something with her, you know, accepting her blackness. Um, I mean, that's the first thing that I'm thinking of, but you know, I might be wrong on that. Um, I think this book is it's it's very constructive in regards to the global system of white supremacy and how it affects us and how it affects us in different matters. So um, racism, uh, you know, racism attacks us differently in different parts of the world as, you know, as we see in the book, how, you know, how racism affects black folks in the island compared to like uh, here in the United States and in even different parts of the United States, how racism uh, attacks us. Uh, it, it basically is a global system, uh, but it, it, it varies depending on what location of the world you are in. Uh, obviously, you know, you are, you are still subjugated, but there are different, different tactics or different uh, types of uh, things that uh, the system does to black folks. And it gives us a, a reaction of, you know, uh, of, uh, uh, of attacking each other uh, as this novel is. And I know when you, uh, when you mentioned about uh, what black male character, you know, can you, you know, relate to or I think attached to, I'm, I might be getting that wrong. Uh, but I, you know, I thought about Toni Morrison's book. I, I you know, I've, I've only, I've only read this book and the bluest eye. And I've noticed in her books, um, you don't really get attached to characters. I mean, you empathize with them or you sympathize with them, but, uh, her characters in her, in her novels, you don't really get attached to them. And I, and I, and I like that because of the fact that it gives you a broader perspective on, you know, what is actually going on. I mean, Toni Morrison, I mean, I mean, I, I, it'd be hard for anybody to disagree, but I mean, she's a literary genius when it comes to this because of the fact that it makes you look at the broader perspective. So like in this tar baby perspective, yeah, I, yeah, there is no black male character that you can, you know, be attached to in this one, but she does this purposefully because of the fact that she wants you to see from an outside perspective, how this system works against black people and how, uh, we as black people attack each other. And I think that's an important point, too, uh, on why we shouldn't be attacking uh, other, you know, other black people, you know, just because they may have a different opinion or just because, uh, you know, they may think differently than us. Because we are very much known to, you know, attack other black people and have, uh, have uh, anti-black views against other people who we disagree with. So, uh this book basically, you know, portrays that as well. Uh, Son thinks that J. Dean is this, you know, uppity Negro who has this education from this white man. And J. Dean thinks that, you know, uh, all Son is good for is, you know, having sex. But, you know, they're both not looking at the bigger picture, that they're both, you know, subjugated and victims of, of, of the white supremacist system. So, uh, that's important to, to look at in this book on how, you know, uh, 
how each of our uh, each of our victims, you know, each victim has been terrorized and how we blame each other or we we kind of make the other person complicit in this in this system when we're all complicit in, in, in upholding this system because of the fact that we've been brainwashed to do that. So uh, that's uh, that's all I have right now in my life. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. The anti-blackness is is definitely a, a monumental problem. Uh, just to make sure that uh, my thoughts uh, with regards to the representation of black males uh, in this book and in U.S. literature in general, uh, and and that would be the point. It's not just which black character do you attach to. Although I do, you know, ask that question pretty regularly when we read these uh, books, but <clears throat> it's the same representation of black males, black male rapist. I am very tired of reading fiction, nonfiction, where essential black characters, core black characters are rapists and criminals uh, and both of them are here uh, and that's that's why i said all that at the beginning it's it's beyond if you're a literary genius then certainly we have had way 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 over representation of black male rapists and over sexualization of black males so we can move past that right that's in so many books it just continues that's what i said like wow i don't know how i feel about just adding another book uh to that pile where black male rapist and black male is reduced to his sex organs like that's what I was pointing about and that it's not just son it's Yardman as well because they have the portion about him uh, being with a 14 year old girl uh, in the book and or criminalized uh, that was the point I was making with the uh, black misandry and uh, even just the general state of, of son's uh, character throughout the book brute work all of it um, and how often this this theme is repeated uh, in American literature it's in Blue Star as well Pacola's dad uh, rapes her uh, that's make sure that's clear the attachment is is key but it's far beyond that with the black misandry that i'm representing unless i misread or am missing something here uh other folks comments questions if i'm not making if i'm not being logical uh it does make sense uh what i'm saying about the black misandry point or any other aspects that we've discussed speak up our last day to be chatting on this text before we push off to another text for next Thursday. I just thought about uh, when you were mentioning the anti-blackness, how important it is, how you end every show, is that, you know, asking the creator to help us when we encounter another black person. And it becomes so important Every time I hear it, and the more that you, you know, exercise and, and to do this, you are actually doing something to uh, uh, fight against the system of white supremacy. I'll leave my life. On the 10 stops, Mr. Fuller talks about it pretty regularly, you know, stop squabbling arguing with other black people and harming other black people like simple things or it would seem simple things simple things that we can just try to to get better at not name calling 
other black people, healthy amount of that uh, in the text uh, that we just finished up here. Tar Baby calling other black people niggers, just being my. That's why I said I think uh, the bluest eye, or at least for me, the bluest eye, I think, is substantially better because it spends a lot more time just getting to the crux of why some of this hostility is there uh, with other black people, I think. Uh, I think she spends more time getting at that. She, I don't think, spends as much time in this book getting at that because she has obviously a different focus uh, for this book. But um, that's a core component, you know, getting rid of that and just being mindful of how we talk to and see each other and recognizing that everything about this system is going to encourage us to be hostile and abusive to other black people. So it's like constant effort uh, to be mindful uh, of that. Other thoughts? Can you hear Yes, sir. Yes, good uh, again. Um, I wanted to um, add on to your um, processing of the sealskin coat as um, I'm thinking out, thinking out loud, that um, the, the particular particular attention that Miss Morrison paid to describing it, and then for JD to go back and ostensibly go back for that that coat, I think that she wanted to um, have the symbolism of being black, you know, wrap herself in blackness, but meanwhile she's still white identified. So I think that was, a, I, I'm, I'm processing is that is very important, you know what I'm saying, that uh, she's, she's got blackness around her, but really um, is very white identified. So I, I'm processing that as such. And then the other thing that I've, um, I've been thinking about is um, I'm comparing Sephora's um Love and romance in area eight, and some of the some of the things that he's some of the suggestions that he has, because like like when I'm um, reflecting back on Son and Jadine's relationship, and they're saying they're so quick to say they love each other, but the very next moment they're beating on each other and yeah. I've been um, processing that, and I think, like I said, I think that is important too. Like where Mr. Uh, Fuller's suggest, uh, suggestions of suggestions and his thoughts about love plays into how this plays out. Now, um, thank you. Good point. Uh, I was thinking uh, the fantasy. How we get into those kind of. I was. Almost thinking, is this a romance novel? But not really. But I mean, we kind of get into those fancy notions of romance. I think when they first were going to Elo as a couple, uh, I was thinking that, oh yeah, there's no way this is gonna where this is gonna end out really bad. <laughs> like I don't know, I don't know what's gonna happen in Elo, but this is gonna go bad. Uh, just because we're in a system of white supremacy, it doesn't support these arrangements. Not healthy uh, arrangements. Uh, everything about this is designed for that to crash and burn literally um 
So, yeah, I think that's important to not just be into the kind of quote unquote fairy tale notion about quote unquote romance uh, and just, oh, it's so nice to hang out and all of that. And then five minutes later, uh, you're cursing each other out and taking out all of your frustrations on that person because that's so common uh, in the system. I think even son when they're for, he's first kind of hooking up with Jadine and he's like, oh, wow, I really like this black female, but how am I going to take care of her? I can't even get a job in New York. That's what Mr. Fuller is talking about. That is the reality. And again, while we don't have men and women, boys and gals, boys and gals. Uh, I do think with the seal skin coat, though, uh, I think that's especially significant because uh, just following up on what the caller just shared, <clears throat> she's white identified. I think that was what I said, you know, chapters ago uh, with both her, her connection, emotional connection to Valerian and uh, Rick, this white man she got the coat from and her whole way of thinking. I think the appeal that she has for New York city and Paris and all of that, the education that she has, uh, but, and uh, the dislike that she has for the darkness being on the Island, all of that. But she's got this, really valuable black seal skin coat. And that's important because this is skin. It's the skin of the seals that she is wearing black skin. Uh, so it's, it's, it's more than just blackness. It's literally, she is wearing black skin. Uh, and we talked saying for a decade, white people kill for fun kill the seals to get a coat uh not that you eat it just so i can go out and be cool look how much money i spent to get this black coat look at this look at that you don't have that show offism uh so you get this coat to me that just represents another form of 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 lynching and satisfying the bloodlust so uh and a skinning on top of it uh and skinning something black uh just it it all of that, like all of that is, in my view, symbolized in being able having a white man be able to pay five thousand, ten thousand dollars for this coat to give to a black female. Like, uh, yeah, like I think it's it's quite a bit because that the seal skin coat is brought up so many times in the book. And for that, that's the finale. You dump son, black male dump him and leave him with an envelope of pictures, go back and get my seal skin, my black seal skin coat from my blue eyed, yellow haired white man and have my head on his shoulder as we, you know, waltz through the airport. Like that's the conclusion of the book with the seal skin coat. Like, wow. Wow. Certainly a different type of blackness. Any other thoughts on any other aspects of the book? Talking crazy, if what, what's been said doesn't make sense, point that out too, please. You, you know, in regards to the relationship, it seems like everybody's relationship in this book was dysfunctional. Uh, when you're talking about Son and Jadine, uh, Sydney and Adine, uh Therese and even Gideon, and then even, uh, even Valerian and, and Margaret. I mean... Everybody in this book had a dysfunctional relationship uh, in this book. So that was something I wanted to add. No quality relationships here. Absolutely. One, one last thing I wanted to add was 
on a positive note, and with the ant metaphor in mind, uh, son may have impregnated J.D. with ideas of cultural blackness, and she may have left a lasting impression upon him. Well, yes, uh, on, on what he should really do with his life if he really despised the uh, civilization, Western civilization, uh, then he got a choice right now to go with the guys in the hills or to keep pursuing, um, you know, this uh, dream. But also, I think Jadine realized something from the talk she had with Ondine about being a woman about what she had experienced with uh, son. So if that makes any sense, I'll keep my line on that. Thanks, Lou. Much obliged, Mr. Demry Four. Uh, any other thoughts, questions, things folks want to make sure they don't forget? And this will be our last chat on Tar Baby. Tony Morrison uh, pushing off to a new book for next Thursday. Um, hmm. There are things that I enjoyed about the book. I think there are a lot of great critiques of white people, specifically white parenting absolutely there are no quality relationships in this year book uh the white people not having quality relationships i think is hugely uh important because i think a lot of times um we you know think or when we talk about the reality of how we do not have families and we do not have great arrangements uh, in the system of white supremacy uh, i think sometimes it gets uh assumed or taken for granted that whites do in the system and that is not the case. Uh, so I do think it's it's phenomenal uh, the effort that she shows uh, in portraying the street family uh, and the abuse and how similar that is to the way that they behave with regards to white supremacy, racism, Valerian pretending to be ignorant. Uh, all of that, I think that is masterful, uh, just extraordinary effort. The age difference, just so much of the the detail, the dexterity and how she constructs all of that and, and then trying to blame it on the black person like just phenomenal uh the green all of it just really uh artfully crafted effort at portraying white people's values uh what is uh valuable bossing these niggas around and firing them for stealing apples like that is valuable not abusing my child yeah caring that my child is being abused yeah got niggas stealing apples. We got important things to deal with. Even with all this money, he still never even went to see Michael. Like He could use old age and all that. He still never. You know, let me go check. Make sure he's good. Yeah. Stay here and let the niggas feed me potatoes. Um, I think there are a lot of tremendous critiques of uh, white people in the book. Uh, certainly uh, the conduct uh, and the 
way that the black characters uh, function, react uh, in the system. Son, uh, Jadine, everyone. Uh, I think if you understand the system of racism, uh, I think it can reveal a lot. I think if if I was more confused in reading this book, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what I would think if I was more confused about racism, white supremacy. I, well, I, let me let me ask that one. Any any people's thoughts? I, I suspect this is everybody here, including me. This is our first time reading this book. So if you were more confused, didn't have had never heard about Mr. Fuller, Dr. Welsing, you're reading this book. Let's say because I suspect some younger people read this book. So let's say you read this book in high school or, you know. Uh, no, no real exposure to white supremacy racism uh, at the time that you read it. Uh, what, how would you process a text like this if you already didn't have that underlying grasp of white supremacy racism? Um, I, I would basically, I, I guess, if it was me, I would probably focus more on. Uh, the Jadine uh, son interaction, uh, not taking into account uh, why, you know, they're acting like that. But then again, too, uh, you know, there were some straightforward, uh, obvious uh, instances of racism in the book, but I probably wouldn't have connected that uh, to the relationship between JD and, and son. So, I mean, that's just me. I, that's probably how I would have kind of processed it. Hmm. I know. appreciate that. Henry in Chicago, any other thoughts for folks, if you had read this material and didn't have a grasp of white supremacy? Well, I think a lot of things would have gone over my head. I wouldn't have, uh, been able to, I guess, see uh, what was really wrong with J.D. and how she was all screwed up because, you know, if you're more confused, then you along the same line to see, though, and so you have those same views about other black people and how well uh, your education has served you. So, uh, but I still wish that I had read the book when I was much younger. It may have helped me along the line of even identifying the intent and uh, intentions of other blacks as well as the patterns that white people use. I'm using a lot. Hmm. Now that is interesting. Right on. Global system uh, of racism. I always think that's important because uh, I think so uh, frequently, regardless of where you are geographically, uh, you end up thinking, oh, man, they just got, you know, racism is just here in Johannesburg or racism is just a problem here in Mississippi or, you know, wherever your little spot is not, you know, oh, this is like everywhere. Like, yeah, I always think that's good. So fiction book <clears throat> where white supremacy racism is presented as a global problem great uh i think there are a lot of uh and it's it's artfully put together i think tony morrison is is a genius uh at her craft uh i've you know 
nothing that would change my mind in what we read here. Uh, but it is <clears throat> that is indicative of the power of white supremacy racism that one of the most common tropes in U.S. literature, fiction or nonfiction is the black male rapist. Uh, this is, I think, concurrent books where you have uh, black male rapist is a prominent part of the book. Bluest Eye followed by Tar Baby. I'll double check to make sure my chronology is accurate. <clears throat> this is 1981. I think it is our second book. Uh, but I mean, it, it says I had a long list of texts. I can read them again, but I mean, there's no need. Uh, and I mean, these are like, I mean, you could pick obscure. Uh, we could go uh, to Melanin Apocalypse, Melanin Apocalypse with Daryl Baines, a guest on the program back in 2011. We could go something obscure or we could go something uh, big, The Klansman, uh, which is what was adapted to Birth of a Nation, uh, which was a bestseller, you know, way back when uh, we could go there. We could go uh, Atticus Finch to kill a mockingbird. I mean, it's so many uh, in so many different eras where it's the same thing. Why does that have to be such a prompt? Oh, we're in a system of, of racism, white supremacy. That's why that that has that has to be uh, and can be uh, such a prominent element in fiction uh, or nonfiction literature, period. Uh, and as a black male victim of white supremacy, man, that gets very, very tedious tired, nauseating reading text over and over again with representations of black male rapists and even black males being reduced to sexual objects. Wow. Just do we have to have more of that? And he's a sexist too. Seems presented that he had problems with, with black females being in power. Uh, not only does he get reduced to being a sexual object, he's a patriarch or aspiring patriarch on top of that. Like, woo. Not in my top 10, but constructive things in the text. Yes, but the black misandry, very, very alive in the system of white supremacy, very alive in the literature of racism, white supremacy. Uh, any other thoughts? Make sure. Miss anybody? Questions? Assume folks are good. <clears throat> uh, next book. Retired firefighter. Yes, uh, I was just thinking uh, of this uh, this particular book. Uh, it goes right in line on uh, uh, its opposite, I would say, of uh, the black male image in the way that you described uh, a more uh, balanced. And it's non-fictional. Uh, the book that was made by journalist Nathan McCall makes me want to make me want to holler. Please don't tell me we've read this before. <laughs> I know I read it a long, long time ago. Uh, number one, black male rapists are in that book too. Uh, I have read that. We have not read it on the cows, but. It would be right there again. Uh, everything I just said, black criminal, black rapist, uh -huh. bang, it's going to be right there uh, in that book. 
but Nathan McCall is a, a journalist uh, now. He talks, it's an autobiography. He talks about growing up, I think, in Virginia. My memory might be bad, but I think it was Virginia. Yes, Portsmouth. Port yes, indeed. He's from Portsmouth, uh, Virginia. Boop, boop. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, but yeah, he talks about his childhood and raping criminal activity bestseller why would that not be a bestseller system of white white supremacy in fact uh gang banging wow a group of black males raping of course that's going to be a bestseller so that would be right in line with what i just said unless i'm talking super crazy and really have made up some wacky things about what's in make me want to holler but i don't think that's the case Somebody had just asked me about that book, too, uh, about reading that book. And I don't remember if I, I remember being noncommittal about it. I just remember saying, oh, I read that before. Eh. That generally doesn't sway me one way or another about a book for the book club. Sometimes we read books that I've read before. Uh, Bluest Eye I had read before many times. Uh, Tar Baby I had not read before. Um, but I don't remember if I had a thought either way. But now thinking about it more, what's in the book? Mm. I, have to sit I, I think I think in I think in this book he, uh, he it, it's it's more of a uh, constructive uh, constructive uh, analysis, uh, more scientific uh, constructive analysis than uh, the book that you guys just finished reading. Uh, he gives. Uh, his own uh, explanations and analysis uh, to uh, just about everything as far as I can remember uh, in itself, and I and and I I uh, remembered I think I I remembered somewhat of his comments on quote unquote historical black colleges. He went to he attended uh, Norfolk State. Uh, University, which is something that recently is being talked about. So, those are some of the reasons why uh, I make it making a suggestion for the book. Uh, yeah. Right on. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Um, I guess folks can vote and let me know what, if this book, Nathan McCall, black author, makes me want to holler, uh, homage to Marvin Gaye in the title, uh, that one, if you have a different book in mind. I was thinking 48 Laws of Power. Uh, I guess another book I was thinking, even though I would not want to read it myself, uh, All God's Children, uh, it's set in South Carolina. <clears throat> I hope that's not a black rapist, too. Um, I know that's a black criminal aspect, but anyway, um, if folks have a different book suggestion, you can share that as well. Any other book suggestion? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um. I know we did Toni Morrison uh, for uh, for uh, pros pros uh, you know because she had just passed away. Um, I was probably suggestion uh, probably me. I appreciate the work of uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. 
since uh, um, Mugabe uh, passed away, I think it was last month, uh, we do the book uh, Gerald Horn did in regards to the Zimbabwe uh, uh, revolution uh, from the barrel of a gun. Um, that was that would probably be my suggestion. Interesting. Interesting. That sounds pretty good. That's, we can put that on the list, too. Uh, From the Barrel of a Gun. That's the title of it. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Oh, is there... Yeah, now see, that's... I forgot before I get too excited now. Is there an audiobook uh, of this? Okay, I see. Uh, From the Barrel of a Gun, United States and the War Against Zimbabwe. Is there an audiobook? That would be number one. And if not... Is somebody willing to narrate? I would volunteer to narrate. Oh, we got to volunteer to narrate. That always helps. I'm always willing to lean in that direction. If we have people that I do not like reading, wow, it is a chore to narrate. I cannot. Alfre Woodard, for two, Alfre Woodard, she was our narrator for uh, Tara Baby. I think she did a spectacular job. I think folks have probably seen her uh, in something uh she's had a pretty lengthy uh she's been in some spike lee films uh she's had a pretty lengthy uh television film uh career but she was the narrator for tar baby uh but wow it is really hard work uh reading these texts uh and getting the pronunciation correct and all uh but from the barrel of a gun the united states and the war against zimbabwe 1965 to 1980 uh hmm uh <clears throat> I'm checking it out just to see if it's make sure it's it looks like it's it would be feasible. It's not 5000 pages or anything uh terribly long. It looks like this would be a feasible option. We can we can definitely include this on our list. So we'll have at least two on the list so far from the barrel of a gun. Nathan McCall makes me and we have a volunteer narrator. <laughs> get that clear. With our volunteer narrator uh, Nathan McCall, Make Me Want to Holler, which I'm pretty sure there's an audio book for, uh, even though I would not want to read that book. Man, I guess if people, if we voted for it and I don't have to read it, that would be fine. But I would probably have to say up front, I have already read that book. And I remember when I read it the first time, I didn't like it. And I did not have, a, this was like before the cows existed. Like I read this book is older. Uh, I read this book a while ago and I remember not liking it. So Oof. I would be going in thinking now, I didn't like this book. <laughs> I read it before. Why did I not like it? That's the way that I would be going in reading. All of that notwithstanding, reading is more important than watching television. And I do read books that I do not like sometimes. Sometimes I'll read them more than once. I did that with uh, Frantz Fanon, formerly one of the worst books I ever read. But I did it with uh, Black Skin, White Mask which I think I've read several, I don't even remember how many times, and I like it less each time I read it. Nathan McCall makes me want to holler. Gerald Horn from The Barrel of a Gun. Uh, 48 Laws of Power. Those are three books that we'll vote on uh, thus far. I think you should only vote if you're going to participate live or in the archives. If you listen to the archive, that's fine. But if you don't participate in the book club, then I don't think you should vote. Those would be the three. Any other votes uh, for books, you know, folks should suggest them quickly. You can email untiljustice at gmail.com. If you think of them between now, any of the programs will be on the next couple of days. You can share then as well. But those are three. Any other book suggestions? Uh, 
All right, those are three. Uh, I put Mumia Abu Jamal there, but we would need a narrator for that. Uh, never mind, I'll read that. Just won't be this book. Maybe the one after this, we can do Mumia live from Death Row. I'd be happy to read that. Uh, so folks can pick, and I'll let people know by uh, Tuesday of next week. I think we have, oh, Dr. Lathan. She should be on the program next Tuesday. So I should be able to let people know by Tuesday of next week what book we will be reading next. Uh, anything else folks need to get in? Book related, Tar Baby related? I think before we can wrap up early, we're all done with the book club. Get ready for tomorrow, workplace racism. Anything else? Uh, folks, we missed totally. Have a hand up. I have a, a suggestion. The book that I'm interested in have on my book list is An American Dilemma by Gunnar Gunnar Murdahl. Murdahl, correct. That's uh, like an older book. Not that we have read books that are older than that on the program, uh, but it's an older book written by a white sociologist. I think it was published in the 19... 40s, 1950s. Um, it's been referenced a lot on this program. Like, wow, so many people, which would be a reason to read it because, you know, if that many people are going to mention it, then everybody should, that should be a part of their boop, foundation so that, all right, yeah, we've read all that and got all the details. Um, He's actually an economist, but I could go with. Um, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn's book as well, but that's mm. those are my suggestions. The Negro okay. Problem. That's so funny. The, that's the best title, The Negro Problem. I love it. I love it. The Negro Problem. Woo! Let's see. Is this in the fee? Oh, this is not in the feasible range. Eight hundred twelve pages. Yeah, not in the feasible range. That will have to be self-study. Uh, yeah, because that would probably take a year or something to to read. Um, but wow, what a title! An American Dilemma: The Negro Problem and Modern Democracy. Love it, love it, Gunnar Murdahl. But it is referenced on this program all the time like wow just uh white people black people pam used to reference it like 10 10 years uh he gets mentioned at least once or twice a year by a guest or somebody listener somebody will reference this book right on uh let's see any else much obliged for the suggestion let us know if you dig into it and start digging up any juicy tidbits uh, from American Dilemma or any other listeners if you've read it and you want to write up a counter racist summary uh, I would be happy to share uh, reading is more important than watching television if you write a counter racist review of American Dilemma I will share it might help encourage some other listeners to check out that book uh, anything else We'll assume folks are good. Uh, we should be here tomorrow for Workplace Racism. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Whew. Lots to share.
overflowing. I've never had so many audio segments dealing with workplace racism. Like I think I'm good for until like December uh, for workplace racism uh, audio segments. There were so many different reports and accusations. I think the mayor got accused of messing over somebody on the job. I mean, it was just endless, endless non-white people being mistreated on the job all over the world. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific uh, tomorrow, Friday. We'll be here Saturday, compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll discuss uh, the passing uh, of, I think that's uh, Mr. Demery Ford's uh, vicinity, uh, United States Congressman uh, Elijah Cummings uh, passed away today. Uh, he spoke quite a bit about racism, white supremacy. Uh, we'll discuss his uh, passing uh, and how whites have conducted themselves uh, in the wake. He just passed away this morning, I believe, uh, and other events from the past uh, seven days. That'll be Saturday. And talking all of that about eating, trying to be healthy, self-care, uh, Dr. Ruby Lathan uh, should be back with us on Tuesday. She's had lots of great health recommendations. And I think quite a few listeners have said, you know, she had an impact and, you know, they tried to eat a little bit better and take better care of themselves, which is that is core component of counter racism right there. Uh, so she should be here. If you have questions, uh, would like to get her input on things that you're doing about food. They just had that new report about red meat, not being such a bad thing to be in your diet. Get your questions ready. Uh, she should be here uh, on Tuesday, 22nd, I believe, of October, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if you have other thoughts, guest suggestions, questions, feel free. Uh, drop an email until justice at gmail.com. And again, the Cows 10-year anniversary yoga retreat for Florida price was lowered to $730. We're able to shave $200 off funding cheaper lodging to help make it a bit more accessible for folks. So the price dropped to 730 and it's the same dates, same location. Uh, we're right about 30, 35 minutes from the Orlando International Airport in Florida. Same dates, December 28th to January 1, uh, five days, four nights, yoga, counter-racism, plant-based meals, constructive activity, no name-calling, Black people hopefully being constructive, not hostile, for four days, taking good work, five days, four nights, taking quality care of ourselves and enjoying quality plant-based meals. 7.30 full price deposit uh, by the end of next week is 3.80 and then the final portion is 3.50. That is uh, the second week of December. Uh, but I will let folks know uh, as the slots fill up. Looking forward to getting down to Florida for warm weather. It has been cold, man, cold and rainy in Seattle. We'll be here tomorrow. Uh, neutralizing workplace racism. Much obliged for the folks who participated in Toni Morrison's Tar Baby Book Club readings. I uh, hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, you can email thoughts uh, in the, you know, if you listen to the archives or what have you as we wrap up the book. If you have a final assessment or two, feel free to share. I do read them uh, and appreciate any questions if things weren't clear. If you have your own thoughts, if you found some information, uh, please share until justice at gmail.com. With that, we will call it a broadcast. <clears throat> Sobriety would be best under conditions 
of white supremacy. Uh, let's preserve our brain computers so that we can come up with solutions to the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Uh, let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. And if you are driving, make sure you are not on your cell phone. Again, just trying to do all the little things that we can do to minimize contact with race soldiers. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cows signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs> judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.